Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're going to cover verses 19 through 42. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us and study God's Word with us, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. Again, we covered the first 18 verses last week of John chapter 10. So if you'll turn to Uh, that chapter of John's narrative, then we'll pick it up at verse 19 and and cover uh, those verses 19 to the end of the chapter, verse 42. And I know we're going to be blessed, and the Lord desires to just continue to minister to us here this morning as we now give attention to the Word of God. There was one announcement while you're turning there and finding your place in John chapter 10 that I forgot to give, and they asked me to announce this, Daryl and uh, San and Sherry. Uh, many of you know them. They're getting married next Sunday at 3 o'clock here at the church. It's an open invitation that they like to give. No presents, just your, or no presents, just your presents, all right? If, just come, all right? Don't bring presents or anything. Um, they just want to be able to uh, have an open invitation to uh, their church family. So 3 o'clock next Sunday, if you want to write that down on your calendar. In the meantime, we want to study God's Word uh, this morning. John chapter 10, you should be in your place as we cover verses 19 through 42. Now remember at this time in John's study that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. And of course, John's gospel is different than the synoptic gospels in that John focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So a lot of the events and that occur written by John, of course inspired by the Spirit of God, take place in Jerusalem just as in chapter 10 is. And Jesus has been declaring to the people that I am the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. And of course at this time of John 10, Jesus is only a few months from going to the cross of Calvary and and dying for the sins of humanity. Jesus, as we read last week, would declare that I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and, and out and find pasture. And Jesus, remember this, uniquely claims to be the door to salvation, the door to heaven. He is the true shepherd that died for you and for me and rose from the grave. And we need to remember that no other religious leader did that. Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, they didn't die for you. And they didn't resurrect from the grave. And we ended last week with Jesus saying, I have the power to lay down my life and the power to raise it up again. So he alone died for you and me. He alone rose from the grave. And so Jesus says, all others are thieves and robbers. Because he alone can give us eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me, is what Jesus declared very clearly, as we will see later on in John's Gospel. But also, for us that are living now, he desires to give us life abundantly. That is a life of peace and joy and provision and to to give us strength and to be able to live by godly wisdom. That's what it means by life abundantly, to live life the way it was meant to be lived to live in a godly way, and to be able to experience the blessings of the Lord. He's the one that will provide that for you and for me as we just develop our closeness and relationship and abide in Christ in our lives. So, Father, we pray this morning that as we study your word again and as we learn about Jesus, the good shepherd, that it would cause us to love him more and bring us into a deeper fellowship and relationship with you, Lord. And Father, we do thank you for 
for the eternal life that comes through Jesus alone, through the cross and through his resurrection, and also, Lord, for the life abundantly that you desire to give to us in our lives presently. And Lord, how we desperately need that. And to, to be ones that experience the riches of your grace and your love and your mercy and your goodness. So Lord, help us be attentive right now as we've already prayed that our spiritual ears would be open. And Lord, may we just be attentive to the things you want to show us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's pick up our text at verse 19 of John chapter 10. Jesus, uh, as he's been speaking, but we read that therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So once again, we we see that the people were divided over Jesus. Some were saying that, that he has a demon. Others were saying, no, he, he opened the eyes of that man who was born blind, of course, making reference to that miracle that we read about in the previous chapter in John chapter 9. But I want us to take note of this, that not only did they notice the works of Jesus opening up the eyes of the man born blind and other miracles that he had done in Jerusalem, but also in verse 21, they're saying this is not the words of one who has a demon. So not only are they noting the works of Jesus, but also they are noting the words that he spoke. Now you may recall, if you've been with us in our study of this gospel on Sunday mornings, that in chapter 7, that it was the religious leaders that sent the soldiers, the temple soldiers, to arrest Jesus. And they come back, those soldiers, and the religious leaders you know, notice they did, they did not bring Jesus back with them. They did not arrest him. And they're saying, why didn't you bring him back? Why didn't you arrest him? And the soldiers answered by saying, never before has a man spoke like this man speaks. And in that, they were confessing that he's not just mere man, that he's speaking the words of God. And of course, the religious leaders were all upset at the soldiers because uh, the soldiers, instead of arresting Jesus, Jesus arrested them with the words that he spoke. And we also know that, as we saw earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, that as the crowds were beginning to leave Jesus, as he said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes in need of me and drinks of me shall never hunger and thirst again, that as they were leaving, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, do you want to go also? And Peter said something so profound. He said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus is the living word. And haven't you found that the words of Jesus, that they are truly living and powerful, piercing your heart, arresting your heart, the wonderful declarations that, that he's been making, that I am the bread of life, and I am the one that you come to if you thirst for living water, that I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the light of the world, and truly he is. So we continue reading in verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now when you read about the feasts that are described in the Old Testament, the Feast of Dedication is not mentioned. There were no feasts that they were instructed in the law that would take place in the wintertime. 
the feasts that are uh, there prescribed in, in the Old Testament, they would take place in the spring, such as Passover, and then early summer, Pentecost, and then in the fall, that's where the Feast of Tabernacles would take place that we read about in John's Gospel, that Jesus was there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, where he would declare that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his hearts will flow torrents of living water. But those feasts took you know, in this time, or took place in the spring and early summer and fall, there was no winter feast that they were to celebrate, and uh, that's described in the word or in the law. And the reason is, is because the feast of dedication would come much, much later, after the law was written. Matter of fact, about 1,300 years after the law was given to Moses. It was a feast that commemorated the, the Maccabean Revolution. And you might be thinking, well, uh, who are the Maccabeans and what were they revolting about? And it's a real interesting um, thing, event that happened historically that we know in 174 B.C. Matter of fact, in our study of Daniel, as you go through Daniel's study, that Daniel, as he is there about uh, 600 B.C., he's making prophecies concerning uh, all the way from the Babylonian Empire clear up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And some of the prophecies that it gave were near uh, prophecies that would happen in the near fulfillment. They, we look back and they already happened. But when Daniel was prophesying, it was all future. And he prophesied about not only the Babylonian Empire, um, but also about the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire. And so all that uh, we looked at very carefully as so we've gone through the book of Daniel. But Daniel would also prophesy about, you know, the, the, the Greeks and Alexander the Great and how he would end up dying. And of course he did, as you remember from your high school history lesson, that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. He had conquered pretty much the known world. And you hear about the, the, the weeping of Alexander the Great as he said, is there no more worlds for me to conquer? Well, he would die at a young age and then his empire, the, the Grecian empire, would be passed to four generals, his four generals, and then Daniel focuses on the prophecies of the Seleucian family and the Ptolemy family, Ptolemy in Egypt, Seleucian up in Syria, and in between is Israel. So it's very interesting to look at. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but he would talk about a man that would come on the scene, and it would happen in 174 B.C., a Syrian king. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a brutal, evil man. He came into Jerusalem. He took over Jerusalem, him and his soldiers, and they killed many Jews, tens of thousands of Jews. And they wanted the Jews to put away their practices and adopt pagan Greek customs. And so as he did that, here's Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. The, the Jews would call him Antiochus Epinani. That is Antiochus the madman. And he was definitely mad. He was very, very violent man. And he would see himself as a god. He would go into the temple, the second temple at that time. He took a pig and he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies. And of course, pigs uh, considered unclean to the Jewish uh, people. He would take that blood of the pig and he would smear it all over the temple. So he desecrated the temple. And he also historically would set up an image of, of Zeus there in the Holy of Holies. So here comes Antiochus. He does that. He tries to make some of the priests forced them to drink pig's blood. He, he would kill uh, some of the priests. And one of the priests that he killed had 
a number of sons, I believe seven sons, and the Maccabeans. And Judas Maccabee, the oldest brother, would rise up again, being joined by his younger brothers, and they would lead this revolt against Antiochus. And people joined in, other Jews, and eventually after about nine years, it was an amazing miracle. It would be Judas Maccabee and those who joined him would drive out Antiochus and the Syrian soldiers out of Jerusalem. So what they did at that time when Antiochus was gone is they went in and they cleansed the, the temple. They cleaned it all up. They rededicated the temple and they relit the menorah that was in the holy place. Now you know the menorah, the seven branch candlestick or menorah that was there in the holy place and each one of those bulls, each one of those branches had bulls that was full of oil. And the priest would go in and light it. And one of his responsibilities is to fill up that bowl in each one of those seven branches full of oil. And they had to do that every day because the, the, the oil would run out after a day. So when they rededicated the temple and they relit the menorah, you know, seven branches, they realized, oh no, we didn't make any more oil. We didn't make any more holy oil and the lights are going to go out in the menorah and it takes eight days to make a new batch. And so what they did is they prayed and they prayed. And that one day supply of oil in those bowls lasted for eight days. It was a miracle until they had a new batch that they could fill up those bowls once again. So the Feast of Dedication, which takes place in the winter, would be a commemoration of what took place about 160 years before Jesus was born. It's a celebration of the Jews uh, of, you know, relighting the temple and rededicating the temple and driving out Antiochus. And they celebrate that feast today. It's called the Feast of Lights. Also, we know it as, and as they call it, Hanukkah. So they celebrate that at, at Christmas time. So when Hanukkah comes around and you hear about it, you know what Hanukkah is all about historically. So verse 23 tells us Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered him, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So the Jews, again, the religious leaders, they surround Jesus. They say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? And why were they asking Jesus this? Because the declarations that he has been saying really agitated the Jerusalem leaders. As he's been saying, I am the door, that I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus very clearly had been declaring himself to be deity, to be divine, to come from heaven. He would say that if you do not believe that I am he, that you will die in your sins, John chapter 8. And that is why Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. But they wanted Jesus to declare himself on their terms. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? It literally is translated in the Greek, how long are you going to hold up our souls? They were insisting, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I've told you. You won't listen. Uh, you won't look at the works. And the works that I do bear witness of me, that I do them of my Father. And of course, Jesus' life showed that he was the Messiah, healing the sick and raising the dead. He was comforting the brokenhearted. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. 
And Jesus continues, verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. So the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and they follow the shepherd. But you do not know me. You don't believe in me. You don't belong to me. You are not of my sheep. And I know them, that those who are my sheep. And I want to encourage you here this morning that God knows you. That God knows everything about you. He knows his sheep. He knows everything that you've been through, every thought that you're thinking. Everything that, that you're going through presently, he knows and he sees, he hears, he knows his sheep. And sometimes we can think, no one knows me. No one understands me. And maybe that might be you here this morning. And I want to encourage you and give you the truth of God's word that he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd has the ability to preserve and defend his sheep. And he knows you and he knows everything that you're going through. And he says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. And this is, to me, one of the most wonderful promises of our Savior. If you are a believer here this morning, no man, no enemy, no create being can pluck you out of the hand of Jesus. You are truly in God's hands. You're in the shepherd's hands. And so we are to rest in that and rejoice in that and be secure in that. And listen, when God makes a wonderful declaration in his word in that, we are to receive it and rejoice in it and do rest in his love that he has for you and for me and rest in the security that we have in Christ. Lord, I believe in you. I belong to you. That's what you say. I'm in your hands and no one will snatch me out of your hands. No one will snatch me out. I think about the hands of Jesus, and I think that Jesus, he was a carpenter's son. And Jesus raised in that carpenter shop that, that his hands were, were hands that were callous. They were rough hands. He was a working man. And I believe that Jesus knows you guys who work hard. What it's like to have to work hard every single day to provide for your families, to come home tired. Jesus was one that he walked everywhere. And he had those rough hands, those callous hands, and he knows what it is that you go through and, and every day providing for your family, working hard, working hard for uh, that, that you can just be able to be a blessing to your children and to your family. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to, to work hard. I think about Jesus' hands. I think about his hands. I think that they were very gentle hands. And the disciples, you know, as they tried to keep the kids coming to Jesus, Jesus rebuked them. And he said, don't forbid the children to come unto me. And the parents would bring the children to Jesus. And he laid those gentle hands on them, it tells us. And he would bless them and he would pray for them. And he had a deep love for them. Jesus had very compassionate hands, didn't he? 
I was reading this week of Matthew chapter 8 when that man with leprosy came to Jesus and, and it's Luke's narrative that tells us as Luke being a doctor give us more information that the man was full of leprosy and that man cries out to Jesus that if you're willing, you know, cleanse me. And Jesus could have just spoken the word. He didn't have to reach out and touch that man, but he reached out and he touched them. And that man was healed. And maybe here this morning, you're feeling a little bit uh, eaten up, just as that disease of leprosy would eat at the skin of those individuals, this man that was full of leprosy. Maybe you feel like things are, are you know, decaying in your life, being eaten up, whatever it may be. And the Lord desires in his compassion to reach out and touch you and touch your situation. I think about Jesus' hands. I'm sure that not only were they rough and their compassionate hands and they were hands that were gentle and blessing the children, but also they were strong hands. They were, you know, ones that, uh, hands that pulled Peter out of the water. You know the story when Peter walked on the water and he got his eyes off the Lord and he began to sink and he only had time to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out with those strong hands and picked up Peter who the historians called a giant and plopped them back into the boat. And maybe you feel like the circumstances of your life, they, there's the storm that's all around you. Maybe you feel like you're sinking and the Lord knows you and he sees you and he desires to work in your situation and to be able to pull you out of that pit, the, the drowning that you feel like that you're in. But I also know that Jesus, his hands, the secure hands of Jesus. You know, when we have small kids and we're in the parking lot, we hang on to our children, don't we? Our toddlers, we don't just let them run ahead because it's dangerous. And the Lord has a hold of you and you're secure in him because his hands are scarred, the scarred hands of Jesus. As there's a nail mark that is there that was put there because of his love for you. And Jesus went to the cross and allowed them to, to nail his hands and his feet to that cross because he knew that that was what was going to bring provision of forgiveness for you and for me and salvation and right relationship with the Father is through his death and burial and resurrection. He died for you and he's going to keep you and Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or sword? And Paul goes on to, to write, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or death. No, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand this, that the Lord is for you. And he loves you. And will, not might, or oops, I lost one. I felt that way. And the Lord says, Jeff, no, I haven't lost one that the Father has given me, and I'm not about ready to start with you. And we are safe and secure in the hands of God. Isaiah would write that we are engraved on the palm of his hand. 
So be secure in the truth that is declared to you and rejoice in it and rest in that promise. He says, I and the Father are one. It speaks of them being one in essence. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. That is the Trinity. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the religious leaders knew what Jesus was claiming. As we read in verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, the many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of those were do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they picked up stones, and, and notice here, again, it is written. Because remember chapter 8, that Jesus made that statement of deity, uh, using the name of God, before Abraham was, I am. Those religious leaders at that time, that was a few months earlier than this event here in John chapter 10, as they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God, that they picked up stones at that time to stone him. And here they know clearly what Jesus is saying when he says that the Father and I are one. Hey, that's blasphemy. And you being a man, make yourself out to be God, equal in essence with the Father. I don't see how anyone can say that Jesus never claimed to be God never claimed deity. And when we talk to somebody that says, well, Jesus was just a spiritual leader, or he never claimed, you know, to be God, this is a good section to take them to, take them through these verses that we've covered in John's gospel where he claims deity very, very clearly. And the religious leaders knew what it was that he was claiming. And so they're upset. They want to stone him. And notice that they couldn't throw the stones. They were so angry, those religious leaders. They thought they had legal grounds to stone him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Remember, Jesus just got through saying that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to take it up again. He was in control. So I just wonder, I picture all these religious leaders with rocks they pick up and they're going to stone him. Was there, you know, an angel holding back their arms, you know? Uh, did their arms just go limp? They couldn't throw those rocks? You know, their arms becoming paralyzed? I don't know, because Jesus keeps talking to them. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law. I said, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works uh, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So what's Jesus saying here? When they came to him and said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? They didn't ask because they wanted to know the truth. They asked because they wanted to have something to accuse him of. They're trying to, to back him into a corner. They're trying to, to trap him. So Jesus fires right back and he says, it is written in your law. In other words, the law that you believe in, that is true and inspired, given by God, the word of God, it cannot be broken. And if God called them gods, that is with a little g, it was a reference to judges, to legal judges that God had set up in Israel that would make legal judgments for the people. And it was to be in accordance with the law of God. If they are set apart, 
and called gods because that is what God ordained, they have been sanctified. Then why are you upset with me that I said I am the Son of God? Because I am sanctified by my Father, sent into the world. And if you are reluctant to believe my claims, look at my works. I do the works of my Father. Believe the works. Look at the fruit. Blind eyes are seeing. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. The dead are now living. Can't you see the miracles? They could not deny the miracles that he did. It proves that the Father is in me and I in him because we are one. But I want us to draw attention here to verse 39. They sought to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. That's worth noting because he will do that. To the skeptic and to the cynic, he will escape out of their hands. He won't be taken. He won't be captured. And for the last 2,000 years, there have been many skeptics and doubters who have tried to, to seize Jesus. In other words, try to disprove him, dismiss him. He wasn't really the son of God. He was just a lunatic, made these you know, radical statements. Or he was a liar. He wasn't what he claimed to be. And there are those who will try to disprove Jesus, disprove that, that he rose from the grave, and that he conquered sin and death, and that he truly is Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. And there are even some who have dedicated their life in saying, we're going to find the body of Jesus, we're going to excavate these tombs, and we're going to find the body of Jesus. And I think, what a waste of time. Because the tomb was empty. It is gone. Jesus' body, he rose from the grave. He's alive. And we can look at the evidence and see that Jesus definitely rose from the grave, the eyewitness accounts. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody listening here this morning that you're a skeptic. Maybe you know somebody, I think all of us do, that are skeptics. Sometimes the mindset is, you know, Christians are just fanatics and they're weak and can't rely on reality. Or Jesus is just a fairy tale and all that about his resurrection. Or he's just another good spiritual teacher that came and went. And those who feel that way and have that mindset, he will escape out of your hand and you will never disprove him. You will never disprove the word of God. And if anyone is here this morning and you are a skeptic, look at the works honestly. And you may be thinking, well, I don't know if those miracles that we've been reading about or we read about in the Bible are true or not. Look at the greatest miracle of all, and that is his resurrection. Honestly look at it. And there have been those who have come along and honestly look, did Jesus really, you know, rise from the grave? Is the tomb really empty? Or, or was the body stolen? Or did everybody go to the wrong tomb? Or did, you know, Jesus just uh, revive? He wasn't really dead and he came forth from the tomb and started walking around. Really look at the evidence, the eyewitness accounts. And even Paul writes that 500 people saw him at once after his resurrection. If we had something happen here and, and 500 people saw what happened in a court of law, that would be overwhelming evidence. Look at the evidence. And you know where the evidence is? It is also, as we look at it, 
the story of the resurrection objectively. And as you do, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the grave. But we also see the evidence in all of you that are believers. One of the greatest miracles, his resurrection and in you. Changed lives. Changed hearts. As the reality of Jesus is being worked out in your life. For the skeptic and for the cynic, look at the people. Their lives have been changed. How they're a new creation. It's undeniable. Look at the works. And it's ironic, isn't it? We who believe we will never escape out of his hand to the skeptic, he will escape out of your hands. And you'll never seize him. And verse 40, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no signs, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So with the, the religious leaders of the nation more determined than ever to have Jesus be put to death, he leaves Jerusalem, he heads east towards the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was bas baptizing, probably in that area of Perea. Now John the Baptist is not alive at this time. You recall from the other Gospels that it was Herod up north, the Tetrarch, that, that had him beheaded. But John's ministry still had an effect on people. They were saying, we remember what John spoke concerning Jesus. And John wasn't performing any miracles, as we read. He performed no signs, verse 41. But he was declaring Jesus, wasn't he? And all the things that he declared about Jesus were true. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and he's the bridegroom. And John's joy was fulfilled as he spoke about the bridegroom. And he comes from heaven, is what John would say. He simply spoke of Jesus, and all the things that he spoke of Jesus were true. It is interesting that in another place that Jesus would say, after the death of John the Baptist, concerning John the Baptist, that he was the greatest born among women. John the Baptist, up to that point, Jesus' assessment of him is that he was greatest born among women. Now that interests me because when you put all the things together that concerning John, that he didn't do any miracles, but all the things that he spoke of, of Jesus were true. And if you would have asked me at that time, who was the greatest born among women? Who's the greatest in God's eyes? I would have thought maybe it's somebody like Moses. You know Moses who called down the plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea and all these miracles that happened through Moses and leading two and a half million people on a 40-year journey through the wilderness. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's a very difficult ministry. So I would have said perhaps Moses or maybe Elijah who was able to call down fire from heaven or Elijah who had a double portion of Elijah's you know, miracles. I would have thought perhaps David David, who took on giants and killed giants, was a mighty warrior, defeated the enemies all around Israel and brought the nation into peace and prosperity. I would have thought it was David, uh, one of the prophets with amazing prophecies like Daniel. That's who I would have been thinking. But Jesus says, no, it's John the Baptist. He did no signs. He did no miracles. But everything that he spoke of Jesus was true, and he was greatest that was born among women. 
I think that's important to consider here this morning. Because we live in a time where we think, hey, uh, they got success. They got success in ministry because they do miracles. Look at the signs. Look at the numbers. Look at the prestige. Look at the bigness. Look at the popularity. But ultimately, John was great among men because the things that he spoke of Jesus were true. For you who minister to the children, as you teach them about the love of Jesus Christ, great is your ministry. And you are very important in God's eyes. Any of you that are teaching or sharing or discipling, and that's something all of us can do. Sometimes we can think what I do is so insignificant for the Lord or so unimportant. Uh, I, I teach the children. I minister to the little ones. I, I lead a home fellowship. I teach my kids at home. I read the Bible to them. It's not a big deal. Great are you. Great are you in God's eyes and great will be your reward. So I don't close with this and don't pack it up quite yet. All of us will come to the end of our life like John did. All of us, life is short but a vapor. And when we come to the end of our life, whether our bodies were out here or we're raptured or whatever, but when we leave this world, what is it that you want to be known for? Truly, what is it that you want to be known for? I think that's a worthy consideration. How is it that you want your life to be summed up? How is it that you want people to remember you? Was it popularity or wealth or prestige or any of those other things? Success in the world? Or do you want people to sum up your life that you are a man, you are a woman that spoke of Jesus? My dad or my husband, my grandfather, my uncle, my brother, whoever it might be, he was a man that loved God and he lived for God and he shared God and it was a blessing to me and it was a blessing to my family. My mom, my wife, my grandmother, my aunt, my sister, my Sunday school teacher, she was one that taught us about Jesus, and I'll never forget those lessons. And as we consider that question, what is it that we want to be known for? My hope and prayer is that all of us, that we want to be known for different things, but more than anything, that you're a man or woman of God that spoke the truth about Jesus Christ to others and blessed them, and that you are one that brought the gospel to those around you and the truth of God's word to be a blessing to them. And I know that's what I want to be known for. I want to be known for that more than how big my church was or how popular the radio program was or any of those things, more than anything. That your pastor, that he spoke of Jesus, and the things that he spoke of Jesus were true. And he's a man that loved God he was a man that loved God and spoke of God. And great will any of us be 
when we speak the truth of God's word, and that is what is so needed today in this world, for people to hear about Jesus and the gospel, that he loves you, that he died for you. He's the good shepherd. He's the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that will bring eternal life to you. Speak of him. Speak of him. And great will you be in the eyes of God. So, Father, thank you. We thank you so much for this incredible chapter of John as we consider these things and the declarations of Jesus being the good shepherd and the door. And Father, I thank you so much that Jesus came to this world and died for us because of his love for us. He died for you specifically. And I do pray for anyone that is here, if maybe you've been cynical or skeptic or you're looking for answers Jesus is the answer Jesus is true Jesus rose from the grave after he died from you he's alive and he is the way to eternal life there's no other way no one else died for you no one else rose from the grave Jesus alone and he alone will bring salvation to you and make you a new creation in Christ as the Holy Spirit will come in and live in your heart to be born again. But you come in faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven and went to the cross and died for your sins. It's confessing that you're a sinner. And as Jesus said, repent, just change direction. Quit going the direction you're going because the world won't save you. You can't save yourself and turn to Jesus and surrender your life to him. Believing that he died on the cross for you, was put into a grave, and he's alive. He rose from the grave. Knocking on the door of your heart, he loves you. Will you come to him? Today is the day of salvation. And maybe you're thirsty spiritually and hungry. As you come to him, he will fill you and save you that means anything to anyone here this morning don't leave this place if you're not right with God come to Jesus and surrender your heart to him you pray right where you are Jesus I believe that you are the son of God who died for me I thank you that you love me and I am a sinner and I confess that forgive me of my sins Father I pray through Jesus name that Jesus that you would be my my Lord and Savior I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again and I want you to sit on the throne of my heart now I surrender my life to you and thank you for loving me and thank you for hearing me and help me to live for you and to remember that I'm in your hands and no one will snatch me up and if you're here this morning you prayed that sincerely in your heart you prayed that prayer. Will you do me a favor? Just put your hand up and put it back down. Anybody at all? We want to pray with you and for you. We want to minister to you. If you're out in a coffee shop, you can do that. And we give everyone opportunity at our services to come to Christ. Make that statement of faith. Anybody at all at this service in the sanctuary? Okay. So, Father, I pray that we would just remember the wonderful promise not to put a question mark where you put a period 
and that is we are in your hands. The compassionate, gentle, strong, secure hands of Jesus, the scarred hands of Jesus that died for us. Provide for us and bless us, Lord. Lord, as we go our way this week, may we be a testimony of the works that we do of the reality of Jesus in our lives and in our hearts. So, Lord, may we just look to you. Lord, be a light and walk in your love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?